But we are still in the series on the Psalms. So open your Bibles and listen once more as I read to you Psalm 90, the Psalm of Moses. The man of God has a reminder of where we are in our study of this great prayer of Scripture, Psalm 90. It begins with the superscription, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O sons of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it blossoms and sprouts anew. Towards evening, it withers away and dries up. For we have been consumed by your anger. And by your wrath, we have been dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to might, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and wickedness. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present you a heart of wisdom. Return, O Yahweh, how long will it be? And be sorry for your slaves. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. And make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your slaves and your majesty to their sons. And let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. This is the prayer of Moses, the man of God. Now, I think it's safe to say that when we think of the most notable, memorable prayers in the Bible, we often think of the same ones. We think of prayers like Hannah's prayer from 1 Samuel 2, when she prayed, it's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. We think of prayers like the prayer of Jabez in 1 Chronicles 4, where he cries out to God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God grants his request. We think of Hezekiah's prayer, which comes to mind in 2 Kings 19, when Hezekiah prays to the Lord and says, The Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, Lord, and see. Or we think of Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 3, where he's dedicating the temple in 1 Kings 8. He says, Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among your people. You've chosen a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? 
We think of Jonah's prayer in Jonah 2, 1 through 9, from inside the fish where Jonah prays to the Lord, in my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me from the depth of the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. And of course, all throughout the Psalms here, we have the prayers of David as being recorded in these different hymns that we have inspired by God himself. But rarely... My point being is when we think of memorable prayers, do we ever find ourselves here in chapter 90 or Psalm 90 of the great Psalms, the prayer of of Moses, a prayer that is just seeped in beauty and pathos in ancient words that should be one of our first go-tos when we think of prayer. Not only is this psalm attributed to Moses as the author, but also Psalm 90 is filled with some of the most important, undeniable truths that you and I could ever want to fathom, as we have seen thus far in this great time that we've had together. So far in our study, we've seen here in Psalm 90 what I believe are five undeniable truths that come to us as he models for us prayer, five undeniable truths that filled the heart of Moses with meditation and reflection, and again, serves as an example to us on how we should pray as well. These five truths are, and I gave them to you last time, and we'll go over them again, is that the eternality of God is evident, that the brevity of man is certain, that the severity of sin is obvious, that the fragility of life is eventual, and that the necessity of prayer is vital. I'll go over those again, but to put it more simply, perhaps, God is transcendent, man is transitory, sin is tragic, life is temporary, and prayer is treasure. And we're going to look at those in a more in-depth way in just a moment. But first, let me just review where we are in this series on Psalm 90 with the title of the Psalm of Moses, Part 3. This is the Psalm of Moses part three. Even though Moses didn't necessarily write this psalm as a prayer to be an outline to follow, certainly it's important that we do see in this prayer some very undeniable truths that he speaks of and would be wise of us to take note of. When Moses came to a very important moment in his life, when Moses came face-to-face with the fact that he was going to die and not go into the promised land himself. He felt disappointment. He felt defeat. And it's these truths that we have in front of us in Psalm 90 that captivated his mind as he was venturing into the land of the unknown. When he prayed for the people of God as the man of God on behalf of them, these are the truths that were undeniable to him and should be undeniable to us as well. So if you were with us last Lord's Day, you remember we spent our time first looking at what Moses said in this way, our first point, which is the first undeniable truth, that is the eternity, the eternality, excuse me, of God is evident. The eternality of God is evident. Before he starts with any other thing, before he starts with petitions, before he starts to list all of the things that he wants from God in a way that would be appropriate, he begins by echoing back to God those truths about God before he requests anything from God. And we see this again in verse 1 where he begins to speak of the glory of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
Again, God is eternal. God is transcendent. And here Moses is speaking of his otherness, his holy, unlike anything else-ness, if you will. He speaks of God's eternality and God's creativity alongside God's amazing, unchanging stability. So let me unpack for you real quickly what this means. As Moses begins his prayer, it's important that we recognize that what was essential and yet sometimes overwhelmingly passed over, and that is he begins with the nature of God. He begins by first and foremost praying about the only God, the true God, the creator of heaven and earth, the saving God, the God that Moses encountered in the burning bush who said, I am that I am. This is the God who never changes, and this is the God he addresses. And he makes sure in his own heart and in the people's hearing that God is addressed in such a way as the everlasting one. In fact, he begins by calling him Adonai, our dwelling place. He is the home for all true believers. A home when they had no place to go, a home when they were wandering the 40 years in the desert. Moses says, no, God, you are our home. You are our refuge. You are our shelter, our personal security. I want you to really think about this. I want you to think before Moses prepares his request before God, before he goes to God with any kind of petitions that he's going to offer up in verses 13 and following, actually beginning even as early as verse 12, he first begins by just confessing out loud to God through his prayer that he knows God is everlasting, that he knows that he will come himself to an eventual, eventual end, but God in himself is permanent and eternal and never ceasing. He is the home for the homeless. He is the truth himself. This is massive when you think about it. If you actually take this and apply it to your own prayer life, if you actually take the steps and help yourself understand that this can be a model for your own prayer life, what Moses does is inspire us to have an example of what should fill the hearts and what should fill the minds of all who pray to the Lord, especially in times of disappointment, and especially in times of dying. He says here, namely, that he waits to ask for what he wants by first acknowledging what he knows to be true. Before I ask you, O oh God, what concerns my heart, I want you to first know who you are to me and how I see you as your word sees you as eternal. There's a second undeniable truth that consumed Moses' mind at the end of his days, an un deniable truth that filled his heart with prayer, meditations, and reflections. Number one, that the eternality of God was evident to him as he prayed. But number two, the brevity of man is certain as well. So not only is the eternality of God evident, but the brevity of man is certain. And he speaks of this beginning in verses 3. Again, Psalm 90. He speaks to God, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O sons of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night, you have swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew, in the morning it blossoms and sprouts anew, toward evening it withers away and dries up. He uses here in the very last portion of this second point just something that's very common to all of us who actually uh, have grass and see it grow and then see it be burned and see it turn away. 
He says that's like life in so many ways. And then he shifts here in his prayer. He moves away from just talking about the transcendence of God to the transitory nature of man. God is eternal, but man is brief. Man is brief. God remains forever. Man slips away. God gives life and takes life. Man is in the hands of God. God is continually bringing one generation of men to an end, and then he sets another up and has control over human life as he does the inanimate nature that's around him. And one of the reasons why this goes on and on without even barely being noticed is because for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, Moses says, or as a watch in the night. What he's saying there is God doesn't see one generation passing away the same we see it. God doesn't say, see the first 40 years of the generation of the Israelites passing into the wilderness in the same way as we do because he gives life and he takes life and he doesn't think about time in the same way that we think about time. A thousand years in his sight are like yesterday to him, like yesterday. If this language seems somewhat familiar, it's because the Apostle Peter also in his second letter borrows the same idea to express God's sense of time in terms of his own relationship with the promises that God had offered to the people of God in the midst of being scorned. As you know, when Peter writes his second letter, the people of God are intimidated and the whole generation before them is pointing their fingers at them saying, where is your God now? But Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one, thousand, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some consider slowness. So in a very similar way, Moses, the man of God here in Psalm 90 says, in essence, God does not experience time like we do. God is transcendent as we know. He's not subject to anything that he has created over time, or even time itself. I quoted John Frame last time saying, God does not depend on time in that way. He always has enough time to accomplish his purposes, and he never has too much. He is the Lord of time. So Moses begins this prayer, first and foremost, by acknowledging God's transcendence, very important, in comparison to our transitoriness, man's briefness, and we covered that much in depth last time that we were together. And again, if you want to listen to the last sermon that we gave, it's on the website as we speak. Which brings us now to the third point. This is new for us this morning. The third undeniable truth that consumed Moses' mind in his days. The third undeniable truth that filled his heart with meditations. And acts as a model for our prayers. Number one, not only is the eternality of God evident and the brevity of man is certain, but now number three, he goes on to say, the severity of sin is obvious. The severity of sin is obvious. This is undeniable to him. He sees it in his life. He says it in his prayers and he records it for us even here in verses seven through nine. He writes, for we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. This is Moses' commentary back to God in prayer 
about what he understands the tragic nature of sin to be. Namely, that sin is tragic. It is severe. And that severity should be obvious to everyone, especially the Israelites under Moses' leadership. And I say that because sin literally consumed the Israelites as they traveled round and round in the desert for 40 years. And the reason I use those words speaking of them is because that's what Moses says here, that God's anger and wrath consumed them as well. They were consumed by sin, and so God consumed them, both internally in their thoughts and imaginations and outwardly in their sounds of dismay. God had shown both Moses and Israel the severity of sin and what sin does in pruning our earthly existence. So let's start in verse 7 to see what Moses is saying here. But before I get into depth there, I want to make an observation. It's a theme I want you to catch uh, before we do anything else. There's a very interesting relationship here between the severity of what's being spoken of and the humility of speaking it. Let me explain. Though Moses here is praying back to God truths about God's dealing with Israel during the wilderness wanderings, He's also expressing those dealings in terms like God's anger and God's wrath, painting the picture of God's severity with his words. Yet the tone behind the words that Moses strikes seems humble because they are colored by a section that comes after it here in verses 8 and 9 in recognition of sin and weakness. So you see, what, whenever, whatever Moses is saying here about God's anger and about sin in verses 7 is understood by what comes after it in verses 8 and 9. And so you have here the man of God praying in times of need about the feelings of God against sin, and yet he's not shaking his fist or demanding an explanation from God. But he is acknowledging that the sin is severe for a reason, and more on that in just a moment. But here's the lesson before the lesson. Being able to see your own sin as a catalyst for God's discipline in your life and not blaming God for what is happening to you in your life is a special kind of insight given to those who have learned humility. Humility is is usually learned the hard way. And so Moses, not intentionally perhaps, is revealing to us a pattern to use for prayer. He's teaching us what must be in our hearts before the requests match our mouths, and that is a repeated attitude, a repeated attitude that keeps working its way through the words, and that is an attitude of gratitude, of humility. And everyone who's ever been humbled knows that humility is created when you are forced to come to grips with knowing who God is and seeing yourself for who you are. That will create humility. And once these two realities are brought before us, the greatness of God and the meekness and weakness of man, then a profound sense of humility just soon follows after. So Moses transitions from confessing that not only the eternality of God is evident and the brevity of man is certain, but now he adds to this that the severity of sin is obvious, at least it's obvious to those who have been humbled by God's discipline. 
And he begins this part of the prayer in verse 7, going back to Psalm 90. He says, For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. Now, probably the most important, interesting observation here is that Moses includes himself in these words, we, we have been consumed, we have been dismayed. So whatever it is, the issue is he's speaking of historically, we can't be positive about, but Moses felt ownership over the guilt. He was just as much to blame for whatever the people of God had endured as they were to blame. And also notice with me that there is an acceptance at this point in prayer concerning the truth of these sins. It's as if he's saying, we have received our discipline in our emotions. We have felt the correction of your correction in our gut. We know that we deserve what we've received, and we understand the consequences of our sin. It's as if, I I get it, Lord, all of which is blanketed by humility, remembering who you are in the light of knowing who God is, and then praying with that humility about your understanding of your sin, about how you see your sin before God, your culpability to your sin, your deserving of its corrections, and your knowledge that nothing you can do will escape His awareness. H.G. Leopold, famous commentator of the Psalms, wrote of Psalm 90, there does not appear to be any trace of bitterness or of undue pessimism. Just plain, realistic thinking marks these words. Now, if you remember the last time we met and we spoke, we thought that there's a wonderful possibility, an actual probability, that Numbers 20 was the backdrop for Psalm 90. And if that portion of Scripture is familiar to you, I want you to set it as the backdrop this morning, and I pray that you're going to see how these different things that Moses speaks of here will kind of be uh, brought to the forefront as we go along, namely this, that the reason that Israel had been consumed and dismayed by God, as he says, that the reason they understood, verse 11, his fury was because of what happened to them in their wilderness wanderings. So hold your finger here in Psalm 90 and go with me to Numbers 20 because I want this account to be fixed in your mind. And sometimes the best way to do that is just for you to read the words yourselves. So Numbers 20, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Numbers chapter 20. It says, when the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had breathed our last when our brothers breathed their last before Yahweh. Why then have you brought the assembly of Yahweh into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? And what have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this evil place? Is it not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink? And then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly, the doorway of the meeting, and fell on their faces. Then the glory of Yahweh appeared to them, and Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod. And you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock 
before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beast drink. So Moses took the rod from before Yahweh, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses raised high his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah because of the sons of Israel contended with Yahweh, and he proved himself holy among them. Now, I want you to think about what it is that we just read. Here is Moses, man of God, one who was to represent God before the people in their midst, who spoke for God to man like no one else had ever done, who was the epitome of humility, so much so that Numbers 12 says, just eight chapters before this, that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth in his day. This man broke. This man snapped. He lost self-control in front of God and in front of the Israelites, and he disobeyed God by tapping on the rock when God had told him to speak to it. He had said, speak to it, and not only did he not do that, but then he claimed his own abilities for tapping into the power of the flowing waters, and so his sin, he acknowledges, was severe. Not the punishment of sin, not the offense of the sin was severe. Never once does he say, your anger is too much for me. He just says, your anger consumed us. Never does Moses say your wrath was inappropriate for the offense, but rather he says, your wrath dismayed, or in Hebrew it says, horrified us, caused us to be out of our senses, to make haste. It terrified us. You terrified us, but without a trace of blame or wrongdoing or anything. So very carefully, Moses emphasizes the weight of the discipline without complaining about the whip of the discipline. He says, yes, the the weight of the discipline was severe, but I am not commenting about how it is that Uh, it occurs to me whether it was right or wrong. Because by this time in his life, listen to this, Moses had fully grasped his action, his rebellious act, his loss of the 40-year dream of one day leading the people of Israel into the promised land as he believed he would. And so he writes, yes, we were consumed, but with humility and with grace. And so if you're following me, that reality that I've just described and others move him now to write Psalm 90 verse 7, we have been consumed. We have been dismayed, you see. The sin of one has rippling effects on the many. I think one of the terrible consequences of sin that usually exists is that it's realized too late. The consequence of sin is usually realized far too late for most people. The damage has been done. There's no way to reverse it. The killing effects of sin on the heart and on the body are usually evident. 
to all who understand that most people just don't get it. Most people just don't understand the severity of sin. But here Moses is saying, we get it now. We, we all get it now. We all now, as your people, are fully in agreement with you, O God, unlike how we were in the past, that your holy response to our unholy behavior, severe as it may be, is right. It's right that all of our wrongs are against you, the sinless one, the forgiver of sin, and there is no sense whatsoever for us to wonder why we're being disciplined. There's no reason to fight that thought, knowing ourselves as we do, or to complain or to be bitter because now we understand the seriousness and the severity of sin in our lives. We know that we are sinners, and we agree that you're right for dealing with us the way you do because verse 8 says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. You know, what's interesting to me is I had a membership interview with a woman last Sunday, and she was so clear in telling me that one of the first moments of knowing that Grace Church was going to be her home was when she had John MacArthur in front of her, of course, and all the rest of us say that you're a sinner. And she thought she misheard him. And she said, but he said it again a second time, in which I knew now that he was serious. He was telling me I was a sinner, and she never had that thought before. And here now, in her salvation and in her wanting to be a part of Grace Church, the thing that most people say will detract them from coming to Grace is what attracts her to be here. And that is, yes, truth, I am a sinner. And that's what, that's what Moses is emphasizing here. Notice the emphasis. Moses, in what I just read in verse 8, it talks about our sin, but, but listen how Moses does this. Moses understanding that our iniquities, verse 8a, you have set our iniquities before you, and our secret sins he speaks of in the second part of verse, eight, verse b, our secret sins in the light of your presence, He says, and listen to this, that our sins are out in the open before God. That that there is no question, even the most secret sins that are dark and hidden away where no one knows about their existence except you, those sins are lit up by the glory of God in His presence. Now, it's interesting his use of words here that our hidden sins are as illuminated before God as they could be for they're lit up by his glory. Remember, Moses knew all about God's glory. He knew all about what it was to be lit up by God's glory. I think it's a helpful side point here uh, that in Exodus 33, and you don't have to turn there, but just note this, it's in Exodus 33, verses 7 through 11. It says that Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought Yahweh would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it happened whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And it happened whenever Moses entered the tent that the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of 
of the tent, and Yahweh would speak with Moses, and all the people would see the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, and the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Thus Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend." That is an amazing portion of Scripture. That is a sermon within a sermon. And the fact that Moses actually conversed with Yahweh face-to-face, not mouth-to-mouth, was unheard of in his day or our day or any day. But what's so amazing here is even after an experience like that, Moses still wanted more of God. So he begs for something very bold in Exodus 18, or uh, excuse me, later on in verses 18, He wants to see his glory. So Exodus 33, I can't help it. Let me just go there real quick because it's just so powerful, I think. Exodus 33, verse 18, because he says these words. Moses says, I pray you, speaking to God, this is Exodus 33, 18, show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then Yahweh said, behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by, and then I will remove my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Theologians have told us that for Moses the presence of God was confirmed again and again in the most incredible but awful, if you will, appearance of God, theophany. Theophany. Yeah, theophany. I, I, I actually speak for a living. It's weird, but I can't. Uh, but that doesn't stop. I pray for humility, and I got it. Uh, it. it, it The appearance of God physically is shown in some kind of visible manifestation before him. And and it's not that Moses actually saw God the same way the believers see him in heaven, but God manifested himself for Moses' benefit in some way, in some shape that was visible. And it, it reassured him. And I bring this all up to you just because... The fact that Yahweh descends to him, shows himself to him, he sees his glory and he's caught up in his glory and he's been blinded by it. For him now to sit there and say back in Psalm 90, knowing what it is, the glory of God, that he says that your sin is lit up before God, before the glory of God, and it's important that you understand that it's inescapable. I have seen the glory of God. I have had him pass by. I've spoken to him, and your secret sin, the one that you think you so artfully have hidden, is laid bare before him all the time. When Moses speaks of our sin being lit up by the glory of God, it's important that he understand, he understands those words as a man who literally stood there and was fully known. Every wrinkle, every blemish of Moses was before God, and he wants us to know the severity of sin. So what am I saying? There's no secrets with God. There's no secrets with God. There are no dark corners where your sin is hidden, and, and you may fancy for a while in your life that that is true, that perhaps you can hide these things from God because you've hid it from uh, an earthling, therefore you can hide it from a superior being, but there's, 
that blatant recognition that God is, is so obvious, is so clear, is so aware of our sin that it's severe because he never stops seeing it for what it is. So much so, verse 9 says, that we cannot live as long as we used to because our sin, because our sin declines our days in earth according to the fury of God, that we cross over the finish line of this life with a sigh, as if that's all that we have left and no more. Moses transitions from confessing that not only is the eternality of God evident and the brevity of man certain and the severity of sin obvious, but then he goes on to number four, another truth that is inescapable, and that is the fragility of life is eventual. The fragility, the fragile nature of life is eventual. And you see that in verses 10 through 12 of this prayer. He says, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to might, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and wickedness, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Now, if you were with us, When we first introduced this psalm a few weeks ago, you know that I started our time in Psalm 90 by first just looking at verse 12 here and going over that petition. It's the first petition of this entire prayer. Of all that we've prayed thus far, this is the first time that Moses says anything towards God that's a request, and he says, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And as I've said before, if you notice from the majority of this psalm that calls itself a prayer, Moses doesn't really request anything from God. You, you see that so rarely in Scripture, but you do see it that the prayer itself is just about extolling God and confessing sin and understanding who we are before a holy and high God. He's not pleading his case. He, he, he's not doing that at all. He's not asking God for anything. And then starting in verse 12, he does. All the way through verse 17, he starts to pray for for those things that the people of God need. But for the first 11 verses, more than half the prayer, we see Moses doesn't ask for anything. And that compels me. Moses doesn't come to God pleading or begging or requesting or inviting God to do anything. In fact, he doesn't do anything but recite back to God what God already knows about himself to God so that everything that he's going to say to God is blanketed in that truth. That's the largest portion of this psalm. But what Moses is concerned with here in this prayer, at this point, in this first petition of the prayer, is for those who claim God to be their God, to understand that all men die, all women die, all children one day die, regardless of their health, regardless of their wealth, regardless of their prosperity, that there should be those men who take time to do some sanctified subtraction. I called it holy homework because we need to look at the mathematics of our mortality. Just to say it simply, it's time for us that we need to remember that even the born again will die. And I said that last time, the born again will die. The born again will die. You only have so many months, so many moments, so many memories, so many minutes, so many micro minutes, so many seconds left 
that you ought to plan a time and your time out, and you should plan it in such a way where you can present to God a heart of wisdom. Now, after Moses has examined the severity of sin in the life of every man and woman, even Moses himself, he transitions away from the idea that we finish our years with a sigh, as we have just seen, not a scream, but a sigh, and that he switches from the idea of sin severity to human frailty and considers those truths together. If you are following, just note, he moves from praying about brevity of man, verses 3 through 6, in general, to making a very specific point here in verses 10 through 12, in specific, namely, not only are we going to die, but even the time we have to live on earth is fragile overall. The time we have is brief, and the life we have is fragile. Now, remember who's writing those words for just a moment. Moses, at the time of this point in his life, was 120 years old. He's 120 years old. He was born in Egypt. He stayed there until he was 40 years old. He fled from Egypt for 40 years. He, he was with the children of God uh, when they returned out and when they came out of Egypt at 80. He was in the desert for another 40 years. And so he was 120 by the time he died. So here's Moses, 120 years old, praying to God before the people of God as the man of God, reminding them that their lives are short, that their lives are 70 years as a whole, but if you're really, really mighty and strong, maybe you live to 80 years, which was Moses' way of saying, I was really, really strong. I was really stronger than Moses. It's probably what John MacArthur's thinking too. Yeah, I'm 84, and here I am. I'm still strong. By the way, the 2023 CD... Uh, C, statistics, I know as soon as I said that, everybody goes, whatever. But uh, tell us that the average of life expectancy for our generation is strangely confirming. Both sexes combined, the average of life expectancy is 76.4 years. Males, 73.5. Females, 79.3. Isn't that interesting? What does that mean? Well, for over 4,000 years, God already told us what the experts were finding to be true, and that is life is brief and it has an optimal end. All of us have probably heard of the mythical fountain of youth, which speaks of this spring, allegedly, that restores the youth of anyone who drinks or bathes in his water, and tales of this fountain have been recounted all around the world for thousands of years, actually starting in the writings of uh, Herodotus, 5th century, all the way to Ponce de Leon, which you know of in the 16th century. And listen to these writings as far back, again, as 5th century, speaking of this desire for longevity. The travelers then in their turn questioned the king concerning the term of life and died of his people. And they were told that most of them lived 120 years old while some even went beyond that age. They ate boiled fish and had for drink nothing but milk. And when the travelers showed wonder at the number of the years, he led them to a fountain where then when they had washed, they found their flesh all glossy and sleek as if they had bathed in oil and a scent came from the spring like that of violets. The water was so weak, they said, that nothing would float on it, neither wood nor any lighter substance, but all went to the bottom. If the account of this fountain be true, it would be the constant use of the water from it, which makes them so long-lived, end quote. 
you know, those myths are written by people that are just afraid to die. They're just really afraid to die. And because there's no fountain of youth, folks. Uh, sorry. There's no fountain of youth. Uh, there's no way to guarantee a longer life than what Moses writes of here. It's impossible, namely because of sin and rebellion. Because of your sin and your rebellion, your life and my life is brief and fragile. And verse 10 tells us that even at the height of usefulness, the only pride is seen in the fact that they labor their entire existence to practice their wickedness. The idea here is that toil becomes burdensome and that the body is oppressed and it grows weary and labor is weary as well and that the old man is constantly in the condition of the one who's weary. The one, the old man or old woman, the one that ages is always weary because that's all they have. They may boast of their age, but what real advantage is it? The other day when I announced the homegoing I don't know if you were here of, of Wilma Champlin. Um, I have her, um, her bulletin still with me, but just to show you her picture in case you didn't see it. But she went to home to be with the Lord the day before her 106th birthday. And if you were in the worship center the day that I announced it, the congregation applauded. <laughs> As if to say, good job, Wilma. <laughs> you know, good for lasting so long, you know. But she didn't do that, you know. <laughs> that was up to God. You know, regardless of how health conscious you are, I'm sorry, regardless of how often you work out, eat right, you're, soon this life is gone. And verse 10c says, and we fly away. We fly away. That classic hymn, I'll Fly Away, was written in 1929 by Albert Brumley. And once it was published in 1932, became the hymn that has been called one of the most recorded gospel songs of all time. Albert was picking cotton in his family farm when the words of the classic hymn came to his mind. And from that moment, it took Albert three more years to complete the song. Some bright morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. To that home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away in the morning. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Isn't that great? (laughs) It's an American spiritual that used to be sung, but the idea of flying away is glorious to that young author. But here in Psalm 90, to Moses That idea is less than wonderful because here the idea is not the destination of the believer after death, but just that the destiny of the believer is to die, period. Then in verse 11 comes the most important statements of this prayer, a statement that takes the form of a a final question that Moses offers up before he's compelled to ask for what he desires from the Lord. It's, a, it's really like a rhetorical question here. He says, who knows the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that's due you, verse 11. Who knows the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Just notice with me, who knows the power and who knows the fury of you, O Lord, is one thing. But he expresses this towards God and towards the sin of mankind in a way that you might not expect. Let me unpack this. The Israelites knew the power of God and his anger and his wrath, right? They, they, experienced, they knew it, 
They knew God's anger and wrath as evidence in the drowning of Pharaoh's army. They knew God's anger and wrath as Moses came off the mount and saw Aaron and the multitudes dancing around the golden calf. They knew of God's anger and wrath as seen in the rebellion of Korah and the fact that he led a coup against Moses that gathered 250 other men to challenge Moses' authority, only to have the Lord open up the earth and swallow the rebels and their families and their possessions. It says not only were 250 men who were party to Korah's rebellion fell, but it says in number 16 that by the end of it all, that the congregation began to complain that they had killed the Lord's people, and in the end, 14,700 Israelites died. So they knew the power. They knew the anger and fury. But listen, they did not know it according to to the fear that was due you, due him. Knowing that the holy anger of God possesses against sin and then not reacting to that knowledge with reverence towards God, but instead rebellion against God is a problem. To to see his wonders, to see his power is one thing, but to resist it is another some of you all know my father was a Golden Gloves boxer uh, when he was a young man. I've always enjoyed watching boxing with my dad. I did a little boxing in college myself, did horribly. And what you see from time to time, that's why my face is like this. But anyway, uh, but <laughs> it was at one point. Uh, but what you see from time to time when you watch boxing matches is that there's always those imbeciles that are there, full of pride. You've seen this, egging on the other opponent over and over again so foolishly, just moments before they are knocked on the ground, passed out with their tongue hanging out, as if all the jabber that they did in the moments before now have just uh, kind of culminated into one big swollen tongue. In other words, they're saying, I knew your record, I knew how many knockouts you've had, but I thought I was the exception to the rule. So I approached your power with disdain. I didn't fight you with respect according to the fear that is due you. And I say that because it's one thing to know about the power of God and his anger and his wrath. and It's completely another to live your life in constant respect of that fear and reverence. And Moses here is saying that our pride which is just an exercise in futility, needs to be curbed and our reverence for God needs to be heightened. But it's hard for sinful folks to do that. So he gives us the first request of our prayer. Because life is brief, because our time on earth is fragile and fleeting, my first request from God is that he might teach me to live according to the fear that is due him before it's too late. Teach me how to live with the appropriate fear and wonder and reverence that is due you before it's too late. I want to be able to present to God on that final day a heart of wisdom that shows knowledge of your power curbing my sinfulness, that my knowledge of your power and wrath and anger stop me grasping my, my own sin and allowing myself to become wise instead with the days that I have left. And to show you the way of wisdom to be expressed in God through prayer, he transitions then from these preparatory truths that drove him to write this prayer and then the petitions of the, petitions of the prayer itself. 
He will show us how the eternality of God is evident, the brevity of man is certain, the severity of sin is obvious, the fragility of life is eventual, and then the psalm ends by telling us about the necessity of prayer is vital. And he's going to demonstrate that need to God's people more and more by showing them the need they have for favor and for grace and for mercy. In conclusion, when I was a boy, my father taught me an acronym. There was an acronym about prayer, and I'm sure you've heard of it before. It's the word ACTS. ACTS. A stands for adoration. C stands for confession. T stands for thanksgiving. And S stands for supplication. A-C-T-S. ACTS. Well, Moses would agree with my father. We've adored God. We've confessed sin. We've given thanks for the life that we have been given. And next time, when we're in Psalm 90, we're going to see the inspired supplications that come as a natural result of everything that we've learned. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this psalm and for all of the preparatory work that it has laid out before us, understanding who you are, understanding who we are, understanding the severity of our sin against you and the briefness of our lives. And so, Lord, even before we get to the following request, we echo the first petition itself, which is give us a heart of wisdom. Give us a heart of wisdom, O Lord, to know how to live and to plan and to to execute the rest of our days in such a way where we honor you and don't leave anything uh, to be uh, gazed at that would be sinful or be, or be unbecoming of us. Help us, O oh Lord, to be the kind of men and women that you would call us to be, to be holy and to be prayerful and help us to understand this the next time we come together. Bless this people, Lord, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.